0: Okay, so we're coming in for a landing on a, on a two-year journey that we've all been on uh, through our Foundations uh, class. Um, again, I, I'm trying to make sure that we, we keep our method in the midst of our madness in front of you, uh, which is to say this, we started out with an entire semester uh, on uh, Bible knowledge. Uh, we did a whole semester on Bible doctrine through our Confession then we did a whole semester on the doctrine of the church last fall that I led us through in that one. And this semester, we've been talking about what it means to be the church in the world, what it means to have a front face to the world. Um, and so a lot of this has been drawn from a field of study uh, in, in, in sort of theological studies that we call apologetics. What does that word mean? Well, it simply refers, it comes from uh, this verse in 1 Peter where Peter says always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have inside you. And that word defense is the Greek word uh, apologia or apologia, from which we get the word apology. So Paul is say, or Peter is saying, always be prepared to give an apology for what it is that you believe. Now, obviously, that's not saying we apologize for being a Christian. That's not what it means. But it means to give a defense, to give an explanation why is it you feel that you are the way that you are? Why is it that you feel like you believe the way you believe? How have you come to arrive at that particular spot? And so um, when I was growing up, this was, this was an area of peculiar interest for me. And I really don't know why it was, except from the earliest of ages, I began to wrestle with this question of how do I know that what I think that I believe is true and what other people who seem sincere enough I think is not true. How do I navigate that? That always bothered me from a, as, as a child. But when I was in the, growing up in the late 70s and mostly during the 80s, especially during the 80s, um, there was an approach to those kinds of questions that in the last 30 to 35 years I think has changed. There's been a change in the way in which the people, in my opinion, who are doing the best job representing the Christian faith to the watching world, uh, um, have, have sort of arranged how we talk about this. And I want to just do a brief introduction to the idea of what some thinkers uh, are now referring to as defeaters, defeaters, and trying to answer defeater beliefs as a uh, part of our, uh, of our content here. And I want to start with a book, and I really don't know that I can recommend this to you. Uh, it's about 500 pages, a fairly abstract modern philosophy. Uh, but Alvin Plantiga at uh, um, Notre Dame, I actually think he's passed away. I think he passed away a couple of years ago, uh, wrote a book called Warranted Christian Belief, where he was kind of the first to popularize this idea of what a defeater actually is uh, and how that functions uh, in, the, in the life of the church. And I want to get to the definition in just a second. But it basically refers to the fact that we're living in what we might call a post-Christian culture. Um, If you watch American evangelicalism, especially for the past 50 to 80 years, you've seen America and the West go through extremely rapid changes in the way in which information is being uh, uh, passed around about how people come to believe, how people come to say that they know something. Uh, The internet, without question, has sort of created that mania in some incredibly uh, amazing ways. And so what we find, though, is is that when you're in a Christian, when you're in a culture that is post-Christian... That is, the majority of people are actually looking and expressing skepticism from Christianity. That is different from trying to go and talk about Christianity to someone who's never heard it. Does that make sense? For someone who's never really been exposed to Christianity, it's different what you would say to them than what you would say to someone who had it once but now has rejected it. You follow my thinking on that one? And what Plantinga does is it begins to introduce people to the fact that what you have now are these implanted ideas. They're not just ideas. They're actually structures inside people's minds that he refers to as defeaters. And so what I want to do today is to talk about this. uh, Ask, first of all, what is a defeater belief? I want to look at some examples of defeater beliefs. And then try to answer at least a handful of them to where you can start to get an idea of the the methodology of how uh, people have looked at this, okay? Especially Plantiga and some others. So let's take this first one. What do we mean when we say that something is a defeater belief, okay? Well, let's start with the definition. And ooh, microscopic print. I apologize for that. Uh, Enjoy your squinting uh, this morning uh, for Sunday school. Um, So, uh, Tim Keller was also very helpful in sort of popularizing what Plantinga was talking about, and he defines defeater beliefs this way. Every culture hostile to Christianity holds to a set of common sense consensus beliefs. All right, take that phrase first of all, common sense conscientious beliefs. In other words, what's happened is, is there are certain ideas that people have come to grasp which in their minds are so obvious that there is no reason even to consider Christianity. You follow me? Again, when I was growing up in the 80s, it's as if Christianity was a little bit in the dock. People were examining to see if it had internal consistency. People were asking questions about the Bible to see whether or not we really could make it internally coherent. But what's happened now is people have come to a point where they're saying, we answered those questions. And we know that Christianity came and, and was found wanting. And therefore, there's these beliefs that I have that even make the consideration of Christianity on any level a waste of time. That is a defeater belief. And people treat it like it's just common sense. Okay? And what they do then is they reduce a Christian's belief to simply a function of your personal preference. This is, this is good for you. Christianity is good for you. Wonderful. And in general, I don't think anyone's going to persecute you for like being here, at least now. But buckle up. might change in the, in the days to come. But in other words, that's what he means by a common sense consensus. Everybody's like, well, this is just obvious. We already had these conversations. Christianity is completely irrelevant. That make Christianity seem implausible to people. It's not that they've heard your arguments and tested them. They're just like, you haven't given us a reason to look at it in the first place. These are what philosophers call defeater beliefs. And by philosophers, he's talking about Plantega. A defeater belief is belief, is, is belief A, that if true, means belief B can't be true. Does that make sense? I've got this belief A that I believe in, and because I know that that is obvious, then there's no reason for me to consider belief B. Does that make sense? That's, it defeats it. It stops the conversation before it ever really starts. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about these defeater beliefs. The first thing you've got to realize is that every culture has defeater beliefs. And the reason why they're so difficult to address is because they're just kind of out there in the air in which people breathe. Um, very rarely have people thought through these b- defeater beliefs. They've simply absorbed them from the culture around them. In other words, you have every, set, every culture has a culturally- based doubt generation, generator. It's a doubt generation, generator uh, that people will call objections. Maybe they'll say it's problems with Christianity. But when a culture develops a combination of all these defeater beliefs, it becomes a cultural implausibility structure. Let me use that, break down that phrase. What is an implausibility structure? They're saying, look, I'm just telling you that it's really, really unlikely that Christianity would have any reason to appeal to me other than just like, it makes me feel better to go to church on Sunday and hear some inspirational messages. It's just highly implausible. And so the relevance question becomes a big topic when you start to talk about to feeders. We'll get to that in just a second. But every culture has them. The second thing to realize is it's not just ideas. This is huge. Most of the time we think about defending our faith to those that disagree with it as a really highly technical, you know, let's just use the phrase implausibility structure. I don't even know what that means. I could never defend the faith on my own. But understand something that we've learned a lot in the last 30 or 40 years that when people come to convert or deconvert, it's not always because they sat down with a piece of paper and did the pros of believing in this and then the cons and then see which one outweighed the other. That is not how people process truth anymore. Rather, what we're finding is, is more than ideas, these are the stories that people are adopting as being powerfully uh, important to them. They're the myths that we've come to take up. Myths are not always things that are untrue. It's It's the historical stories that we believe. Our desires and the way in which our desires have built up and created institutions. This is a very big deal. And those of you that maybe own or help manage businesses or even work in, in, in large companies like a university that's a lot giant bureaucracy, you know that decisions that people make about the way your institution is going to be formed perpetuate the values of that organization. It, do you follow this? <laughs> what, how you structure your organization that you are participating in or maybe even running and managing says something to the world about your values. And so what we find is, is the best people that are thinking on defeater beliefs are realizing that people's defeaters have begun to be built in the very institutions, okay? In the very institutions that we're raising. More examples on that. Liturgies. Uh, there's a great writer by the name of uh, James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith, who wrote a book called, uh, you, um, oh no, what is it called? You Are What You Love. Is that what it's called? Yeah. You Are What You Love by James Smith. Um, what Smith basically says is, what happens is, is our cultural ideas become embodied in the patterns that we take on. Let me give you an example. I'm sure that one of the things that we love to argue about is all of the politics surrounding the question of gas prices. Right? Right? We can't stand it when gas prices go up. You know, what, who is setting these prices, for goodness sakes? Well, the market's setting them, and so they rise up and down and make us, pain, painful, uh, make us experience pain or relief, depending on whether they rise or fall. Well, at a certain point, you've got to stop and say, I wonder why it is that we're you know, paying this much for gas, and why are we fretting over this so much, and why is so much of our economy tied to it? Well, because there was a season in which the idea of the mobility of a car became so fascinating and so loved and such a desirable ideal to American culture that we said, it doesn't matter, we will do whatever we can to accommodate our desire to live in a car. (laughs) Now look, I'm not not anti-car, I'm not even political when it comes to gas prices when it comes to it. I'm just saying that we are a culture of the car. If you ever go to Europe, I saw this before, and I'm not saying Europe's better than than, than, uh, America. But if you want to get around in Europe, you get on a train. Uh, You see the train complex in Western Europe, and it's incredibly dense compared to what we have here in America. Now, I'm not not even establishing a value on one or the other. I'm just saying that there was a desire for individualized mobility that became embodied in the existence of a car. And now we have a culture of cars. If you've ever lived in Atlanta, you'll know what this is like. <laughs> you know? But of course, it doesn't make any difference because I live in Oxford and I still complain that I hit that red light on South Lamar heading down there. Oh, man, I can't believe it. Everything in Oxford is like three minutes away, right? And I'm still complaining about it. But my point is, is that Smith is saying that all of our desires have become embodied in our institutions. This building around us says something to the watching world about Christ's prayers. Now, you may not like what that says. <laughs> you may struggle with what it says, but it does. Invariably, our institutions, even our architecture, take on our desires. And that's exactly where defeat or beliefs live. It's not just a set of ideas. It's become embodied in the way we live. More on that in just a second. Yes, it's not acquired through systematic thought. In other words, people aren't sitting around and sort of putting the pieces together. What's happening is, is it's sort of coming through the culture their experience. That's why it seems so obvious and so subtle. Another thing that's important to realize, every defeater almost always has a personal aspect. Here's what I mean by that. It's not always through thinking out. It's usually through an experience someone had. Well, you know, honestly, I quit going to church pretty clearly because, you know, when I was a kid, my dad got really, really burned by the church. He was like an officer and they ended up doing something to him and sort of kicked him out and everything was bad. So we just, my family just quit going to church at that time. I had that conversation 50 times in my time on campus in campus ministers. No, notice, had nothing to do with I reject the doctrines of the church. They just had a bad experience there. Now, now the opposite's also true. Some people will join a church without any interest in the ideas themselves just because people were nice to them there. Now, that's not all bad, but you see what it's building this idea about how defeaters work. There's a personal aspect to them almost always. And so yes, we live in a day when we're talking about bringing the gospel to the world, where it's good for us to give our testimony, but we have to work at listening for how it's being heard. Because oftentimes when we're sort of talking about our own personal experience, you may not realize how people are, are receiving that particular thing, or how people even in your office are receiving that particular thing. And where it leads us to, and where we're coming to this ultimately is, is that this whole idea of coming to Christ. This journey that people will make to say, yes, I'm a Christian or no, I reject it, is almost certainly a result of hundreds of many decisions. Now look, this is very different from the way in which it was presented to me growing up. When I was growing up, there was this idea that evangelism and dealing with people coming to Christ was to be sort of gathered into this one great moment where you had a revival at your church, Right? And someone would get up there and sort of present a presentation, and you were overwhelmed by it or not, and then you came to this crisis moment, and you made a decision. You asked Jesus into your heart. Maybe it happened on a youth retreat. Nothing against youth retreat conversion. That was <laughs> I got converted 347 times on youth, youth <laughs> trips, but that's a whole other story. But the bottom line was, now we live in a culture where very rarely will there be this one-time, earth-shattering, life-shifting shift in perspective. That may have been the way that it happened for you, and praise the Lord for it. And of course it still happens in that way. God's Spirit still arrests people in their path with drama and what, with dramatic results. But for the most part, if people, especially your children... For the most part, their coming to faith are going to happen on the basis of hundreds of many decisions, decisions about whether or not this is, first of all, plausible, whether it's worth my time, whether it's internally coherent, whether or not it actually says something to my situation, and it'll make it difficult to figure out exactly where your children are in that particular spectrum, in that sort of uh, uh, list of, uh, of, of ways in which they're coming to Christ. By the way, small little commercial for our system of infant baptism for a moment, when we stand up here and have a a baby get baptized, like we did with the Dunlaps just a couple weeks ago for Easter, one of the things that we are saying is, is we are going to come alongside that child and walk them through those hundreds of many decisions that it's going to take for them to actually stand up here on their own and confess Jesus is their Savior. It's kind of a big deal. I am willing to come alongside <clears throat> the levies so that they can assist them on into belief, to where they come to a measure of assurance. I simply say that because a lot of times we feel like, well, when are we going to do child evangelism? I'm like, actually, we're doing it every single Wednesday night for Eminem, <laughs> and every time somebody volunteers for children's church to go take those kids upstairs. You're doing child evangelism because it may be one small little decision that you've helped them make where you've created the relevancy of Christianity. And we haven't even talked about what it's like to be with youth group people. All right? So you get an idea. Defeater belief is an assumption. It's non-questioned. It's there. But because I believe it, I can't even give Christianity the first thought. So you're asking yourself the question, all right, Les, can you give me an example? Exactly what is a defeater belief? Well, I can give you about 10 of them. These are just to be used for example so that you've got an idea of how they work uh, in the lives of people. I'd be shocked if you haven't heard things like this yourself. Number one, you know, there's just no way that there could be just one religion. One of the things that you realize has happened through internet culture and through the sort of growth of the internet is the fact that we have, all of our children have more exposure to more ideas and thought processes than any of us, I say over the age of 50, had growing up. It's overwhelming. At their fingertips are exposure to ideas and movements from all over the world that make it very difficult for them to sort of gather it all up in one place. And I realize it's one one of the things that motivates people to get off of the internet and to walk away from social media. It's just too much data, right? It's information overload, and so they bail. I don't want to be a part of that. Well, people just reason to themselves. It's like, I don't know this person on TikTok seems perfectly uh, 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 sincere to me. And yet they don't believe in Christianity. They're adopting a different thing. I don't know. They're likable. They've got a million followers, for Pete's sakes. So there must be a whole lot of people that are supporting them beside. And suddenly that becomes a defeater. That can't just be one religion. You think Christianity is the only way? Jesus is the only way? No. It's not even worth asking. Follow me? Let's take another one. How could a good God allow suffering? Uh, Yeah, this is a big one. And honestly, it's one of the easiest to sort of pull out there because it's the easiest to understand. Look, if there's a God and he's all powerful, why hasn't he stopped evil? Maybe then there is a God, but he's just not all good. And he doesn't have the will to stop the evil that exists. And suddenly you're like, oops, How do I respond to that. If there's evil in the world, how can we actually say there's still a God? Now, look, this one also uh, almost always deals with personal hurt as well, where people don't know how to look and say, I don't know why God allowed my parents to divorce when they were the age that they were. I don't know why it was that, that my grandmother died when we prayed and prayed and prayed so sincerely for her to survive, and she didn't. It's personal, right? It's not always an intellectual thing. It's a personal thing. Number three, you know, Christians have been unjust. Once you get exposed to the ways in which Christians have often de- dealt in, uh, with situations in the world, now that we're also uncovering patterns of spiritual abuse that many pastors are involved in, it's offensive. So like, look, if you guys can't get your own house in order, why should I believe in it? That's a defeater belief. <clears throat> you know, you just can't take the Bible seriously. It really its It's entertaining to some people that there is a boy, you scratch your face and you create a pot. That was me. That was not you. <clears throat> um, Why would you build your faith on the Bible? This was about, uh, this was, gosh, 22 years ago. There was a student who's in my ministry who grew up in a a PCA church and had gone to school. He was a senior at Ole Miss. And he said, you know, this is interesting. I just got a question. We keep quoting from the Bible. Like, why would you quote from a document that we know has so much mistakes? Like, what do we do do about the mistakes in the Bible? And I was like, what mistakes (laughs) to which are you referring to? Because we really do believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible. Now, for some of the people, that's a very complicated thing. For most people, they're like, no, it's not. It's a human document. And they shrug their shoulders because it's not worth talking about. That's a defeater belief, right? They don't want to talk with you about the actual facts of it. They're just not willing to entertain it. Christianity is anti-gay. This is fascinating. Can you imagine having this Sunday school 20 years ago and saying that? As a defeater belief. Because Christianity seems to have had a... a, um, a uh, consistent posture of not being affirming of the LGBT movement, there is no way that I can walk in and be a part of it. Can you imagine saying that 20 years ago in our particular world? It's amazing how quickly that, that agenda has changed. But you need to understand that most of your children, when whom you sort of maybe want to talk about the issues of human sexuality, when you bring that up to them, they will look at you with a sense of detachment. hmm. I used to say it this way, <clears throat> my children view homosexuality the same way you and I viewed smoking 20 years ago. You know, when it, somebody who is a smoker, you'd be kind of like, well, you know, it's probably not that healthy for you. Uh, I, I certainly don't choose to do it myself, but you know, hey, to each his own. I mean, not, knock yourself out with your cigarettes. we really felt. That's how my children feel about the LGBT movement. Well, you know, maybe it's not that healthy. I don't think Christians really believe that it's all that cool, but you know, whatever. That's the posture, you know? And again, that becomes, because what they're doing is, is it's, not that, <laughs> it's not that all these kids today are gay. Somebody said that the other day. They're like, all the kids today are gay. All of them are. No, they're not. What's happening is, is it's become a justice issue, okay? So number three and number five are very closely related in the minds of your young people. If the Bible is anti-gay and Christians are anti-gay, it means that we are now participating in, in, in injustice, And I've heard tons of students say to me, I just don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. Right? Because we were the same ones back, Christians back in the 1960s were the same ones saying that African Americans should not worship with white people. So if you messed it up back then in the 60s, how can I trust you now with what you're saying about being gay? My dad used to look at me and be like, how now, brown cow? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Thank you for thinking that's funny. I thought that was hilarious. Nobody else thought it was funny. Getting kind of weird here. Um, but that is a defeater belief, okay? I'm running out of time here. Um, yeah, the church is just a political movement. Um, it, it, people look and say, well, if, you just, if, if this is just a, a platform for you know, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, I'm not interested in it, All right? A defeater belief. Christians have no room for beauty and art. Uh, and it's not going to be really expressed that way, but sort of a generalized disdain for the arts and for the, the visual uh, parts. That's a defeater belief because a lot of people are wired that way. I would argue God is the great artist. We've had this talk before, Eden, hadn't we? You can't get along with each other, so why should we believe? The existence of denominations will let people say Christianity is not worth talking about. Y'all can't figure it out yourself. <laughs> when you realize, like, A lot of the differences between us are so subtle. Nobody looks and says that, you know, Grace Bible, because J.D. and I have fun poking fun at each other about infant baptism. (laughs) These people are not outside of the kingdom, for goodness sakes. Of course, they're not even going to give that a listen because it's a defeater belief. Science has disproved Christianity. I don't hear this near as much as I used to, for whatever it's worth. Uh, But I'll say this. I think Greg Davidson is your man on this. If you ever want to go take him out for a cup of coffee, he will walk you through that particular defeater belief. And then finally, I just can't imagine how a loving God could send somebody to hell. You guys believe in the doctrine of eternal punishment. I can't even, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Why would, I even, why would you even be a part of something like that? Okay? So I'm assuming you've heard something like this. But again, my point is, is that none of these things have necessarily been logically thought through. Nor will they necessarily be dealt with or engaged with simply by an intellectual argument. That's actually the good news. Because some of you used to come to these classes and be kind of like, I could never do apologetics. I don't have that kind of mind. You don't have to. Because they weren't adopted because of an intellectual process. They can actually not be, they can be abandoned through a, a process. that's not purely intellectual, right? All right, so that brings us to the last question, which is like, how do we answer these particular defeated? Look at the motion graphics, y'all. Come on, like, this is like cutting edge vivid things. There's things moving on the screen. My mind is blown. All right, first of all, how do we answer defeater beliefs? Give me five minutes on this and I want to hear your questions about it. Uh, Not all defeaters are relevant for each person. We have to get to know them long enough to hear their objections. Yeah, this is kind of a big deal. Um, um, Defeater beliefs are not necessarily... Everybody that you meet will not embrace all 10 of those things that I mentioned. And by the way, there's 50 others of these kind of defeater beliefs. But you, one of the things you've got to realize is almost certainly there's a singular pressure point that affected your person that you're engaged with. Francis Schaeffer used to say, this is, he died in 1986, the year I graduated from high school. Francis Schaeffer used to say that if he was engaging with a secular person in Western Europe, and he was running Brie over in Switzerland, he said, I, if I had one hour with a person, I would listen for 55 minutes and offer my suggestions for the last five. Because if I didn't listen long enough, I wouldn't know exactly what it was that they were really struggling with. We can't be defensive in asking our friends questions about their belief systems uh, because it actually pushes them further away. Again, these are not just philosophical issues. They're personal. uh, And therefore, you've got to give them time to feel like they're genuinely being heard. Not just being heard, but actually being respected for their uh, objection. Sometimes you want to enter into it. When someone looks at you and says, I just can't imagine how you could take the Bible to be true, step into that and be like, and you know what? Some of it's hard. I'm down with you. i got to tell you, i got places in the Bible that like still freak me out. That's okay. You've not given up the farm to find a way for them to realize they're not here to squash me. They actually want to sort of entertain these, these particular things. I want to open up those things to them thinking about it and talking about it, right? Restate their objection back to them in the most persuasive form. When you're engaging with people out there, don't caricature their ideas. Embrace them for what they legitimately are. Um, when someone, come, uh, what was, uh, are we all watching Ted Lasso? Do, does anybody else watch Ted Lasso? It's been a very interesting pro, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, there have been a couple of gay relationships that have come up on Ted Lasso recently. And I remember talking with somebody a couple weeks ago when there was an episode that came out about two guys who had gotten together, or at least they were both gay and they weren't after each other, but they were just talking about the experience of a gay person. And the one guy was like, you know, the hard part for me is, is I have this ache inside me, he called it an ache, to be understood and to be known in this particular way, and yet I just can't. And it just, that's the thing that sort of hangs over my life in sadness. You got to hear me. That was a powerful presentation and a powerful apologetic, if I can use that word, to those who want to embrace the LGBT movement in its totality. Well, guess what? We do have the opportunity to be like, hey, I want to talk about that ache because I guarantee I know how it hurts. And not, well, let's start with step one. Know that you're a sinner that's going to burn in hell if you don't get rid of this. Okay. Maybe we could listen for a little bit longer and sort of enter into what that ache is and suggest and say, you know, maybe you've misplaced where the ache actually is. Maybe you thought the ache was over here, but it actually was a little bit over here. But again, it's not going to happen until we get a, a time of conversation. Model Christian behavior. It's very important for us to be very careful, culturally speaking, that we're not the pack up your toys and leave people, to leave the discussion. We don't leave a conversation just because there's something that we didn't feel like we had the, the ability to answer. And a lot of times what happens is we get intimidated by someone's objections and we withdraw from them because we get a little bit afraid of them. That's not what we need to do. We need to continue to engage and move in. All right, let, me, let me unpack a couple of examples of the way in which we sort of uh, uh, help to uh, uh, answer some of these particular things, okay? Let's take that first one that we dealt with. You know, there's just no way that there can be just one true religion um, uh, this is one of those defea- defeaters, <laughs> which, interestingly enough, is self-defeating. Think about this whole, you know, there's just no way that there could be one true religion. That sounds so reasonable in the internet age because there's so many different beliefs. How can you say one to the other? Well, what they don't like is, they don't like the arrogance of Christians suggesting that they found the only way. But if you really take a look at their of obje- uh, that defeater, <laughs> What you realize is my arrogance in suggesting that Christianity is the only way is nowhere near as arrogant as their suggestion that they have actually examined all of the religions themselves and come to show that actually they're all saying the same thing. Let me give you a famous example that came from, I think this is Nietzsche. Is Nietzsche the big elephant and the three blind men? I'm looking to an educator. Help me. Okay, whatever. So there's this great old story about them. Um, <laughs> it was terrible to do that to somebody, Jason. I apologize. So here was the this illustration that this philosopher came to. There's three blind men who walk up to an elephant. And the first blind man is to describe what the elephant is like. Well, he's standing at the elephant's trunk. And he's like, well, I think an elephant is like a, like a big old snake, you know, a big curly snake. That's what an elephant's like. Well, the second blind man walks up to his leg and is like, no, no, no. An elephant's like a, like a great big uh, tree trunk. And the third one's like, no, y'all got it wrong, because he's standing on the side of the elephant. He's like, It's like a huge, giant wall. Well, the truth is, the elephant is God. We're all just blind people, you know, fumbling around to try to figure out exactly what he's really like. And so we're all expressing a little bit of truth. All of these paths, whether it's Islam or Hinduism or Christianity or Judaism or humanism, they're all headed up to the same path. Doesn't that feel like that's one that you feel? You're like, it feels very, very intelligent. What do I say about that? Until you suddenly realize this hmm, so you're saying that the Christian, the Hindu, the Muslim, and the Jew, we're all blind, but you are the only one who can see the whole elephant? See the arrogance? The arrogance is that somehow I'm coming from a spect- perspective where I see all. So this objection, there can't just be one true religion, is really someone saying, I think your religion is false and my religion of, of complete relativism is true. See the point there? So this, it, in, in other words, one philosopher said it this way, inclusivism, I want to be inclusive of all world religion, is actually truly just covert exclusivism. It's masking itself. It came in under the radar screen. So yeah, you just can't have it. To assert a belief system is to stand upon something that is true, something that you are purporting to be true. So you cannot get around the exclusive nature of truth claims. You can't get around it, right? So therefore, what that means therefore, now this is where I'm about to throw a curveball at you. What What the secular world hates about Christians is because we're so intolerant. But the funny thing is, they're far more intolerant. And what's fascinating is, is cancel culture, I think, has actually brought this very much to the fore. Because what we're finding is, is whether you're from the left or from the right, we can jettison your sorry self out of the conversation just as soon as I've got something I can weaponize. So we now are saying, nobody has the moral high ground on who gets canceled in this particular culture, which we've kind of discovered that we weren't quite as tolerant as we thought we were, are we? But guess where Christians can come in? Christians can actually walk in and say, I'm willing actually, because of the security that's been won for me in the gospel, to respect you because you're someone created in the image of God. And I'm therefore going to vote on policies that will make sure that you're protected in your sense of being in the image of God to the degree that I can do so in good conscience and create a place where there's actually more toleration. This is where we were in RUF. and I was on campus at Ole Miss, I fought for us to let the Muslim campus minister onto our, it wasn't really a chaplain's council, it was sort of like the collection of, of uh, re- religious students. And I remember people looking and being like, well, I mean, why are you advocating for that? I mean, you're a Christian. I was like, yes, <laughs> because all I know is I, I'm not insecure about my faith, but I know that we'll be sick as a culture if one religion in particular gets booted from a seat at the table, So yes, I was was a proponent on the college campus for pluralism. Pluralism was my friend because it gave me a seat at the table. I just happen to be one who believed that Jesus can hold his own against a Muslim and a Hindu and otherwise. But I had to have an issue where I was respecting them enough to be at the table. Do you see what that means? The gospel has within it the tools, I would argue, for us to be able to be inclusive in a way in which other religions can't. man, and I'm just out of time. That's a doggone shame. Because we can't talk about uh, how could a good God allow suffering. That one's easy. That one's not that hard. The answer is we don't know. And the church is responsible for injustice. Yes, it's got its own self-critique built inside of it. All right, look, (laughs) call me for questions. We can go have coffee this week. I ran out of time. It's a terrible thing. It's it's, it's, it's run on of the mouth. It's your own fault. You should have gotten a different pastor. So. Anyway. All right. Let me close. We hope help this is a little bit of thing. I, th- I think we're still going into May. Won't Melvin be back next week? I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We'll keep you posted on that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us grace to work through this. Sorry for all the uh, verbiage uh, at these people. Give them grace to filter through the things that were helpful uh, and to maybe ask and be curious about the things that are not clear. Uh, but in the end, help us to be those people that are a light to the world. You put us up on a hill out here uh, in East Oxford. Let us be a light in more than just one way. Uh, by showing people exactly how it is that you resolve these conflicts. Would you help us in that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.